Scripture passage is, as you can see, from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, though primarily we'll be looking at verses 1 and 2. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You can be seated. Once again, I say good morning. Well, would it relieve anybody's anxiety if you were to hear that this morning we are not going to be talking about anxiety? But then does it bring it back if you hear that instead we're going to be talking about judgmentalism and the danger of being overly critical and graceless in our relationships with one another? I certainly hope not, though God's Spirit will move where He will, and He will move as is needed among His people. Well, by the mercy of God, though the Bible does open up for us many of the mysteries of the universe and man's place within, it also allows, or perhaps we could better say it forces, us to engage with very practical issues that we face in our lives. We may not always like what it says, and certainly that will be true at times, especially when we have been operating in a way that is against Scripture standards. So we might not always like what it says, but we cannot accuse God of not dealing with the kind of day-by-day events that dominate our lives. We cannot accuse him of failing to speak to our weaknesses or to our fears. God's standard, man's weakness, and what God requires of man are plain to see all across the pages of Scripture. If we would just be willing to look, the courage to be measured by it, and the humility to confess when we have missed the mark, and to ask God for the strength to go forth and be faithful. Well, as we dive into a new theme that will likely take us a few weeks to walk through, I ask you to join me in prayer. Father, as is true of us every time we gather, every moment of our lives, we are in desperate need of your spirit. We dare not think apart from the clarity that your spirit gives. We dare not measure things according to our own instincts, our own desires, according to ourselves. We know that we need to be corrected by your word and we need your spirit to move if that is going to happen. 
So Father, we both ask that you would not leave us to ourselves and we come here confident that you will not and you have not. That you have given us your spirit. You have changed our natures. You have given us new hearts. Father, this morning, aid us in our battle against the flesh to put it to death with its deeds. Even if truths that we hear are difficult, may they still be beautiful to our eyes because we know that they reflect the wonder of our God. And to be conformed to them make us more pleasing to him. Father, help us as we hear from your word, as we have time to reflect, to to sing and praise, to discuss. Make us more like Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount this morning and for the next few weeks, you will notice a shift in themes from anxiety, as I said, to judgmentalism or to being overly critical of others. As we do, we we must not allow ourselves to forget the context into which both of these sections, both of these themes have fallen. This context that informs our understanding of what is being condemned and what is being commended to us. The passages dealing with anxiety and now with making judgments, though they deal with different issues, both float out of the same warnings that Christ gave his disciples against hypocrisy and against a focus that is on the things of this earth rather than on the things of heaven. They come as part of a call to evaluate one's own hearts for Christ's disciples to evaluate themselves to look inward and see what motivates them. As such, we should expect that Jesus' teaching on judging would be focused on what takes place within his disciples' hearts and how it affects their interaction, the relationships one with another. We shouldn't expect him in this context to be addressing the absolute judgments that God must make, or even the kind of judgment that the state is called to offer. Well, it's rather important that we make this kind of distinction when we're thinking about judgments. There is a, excuse me, there's a big difference between the kind of absolute judgment that God makes so that justice may be satisfied, that he leaves nothing incomplete, nothing hanging in the air, nothing yet to accuse him or to accuse one of his people or to stand as an affront to his nature. That is one type of of judgment that God must make, which is different from the kind of judgments that individuals make concerning one another. Different than those things that control how individuals treat one another when they feel that they have been offended or sinned against. Because individuals can choose to overlook an offense. I'm not sure if everyone realizes that. 
When you're offended, you can choose to just simply overlook it and not become upset, to not demand immediate retribution. I think our society has forgotten that truth. An individual can overlook an offense. Ultimately, because it isn't their responsibility to ensure that every wrong is made right. That, that is not our calling. That is not our responsibility, our burden. But God cannot simply choose to ignore an offense. Not ultimately. It is not in his nature to the praise of his glorious name to overlook injustice. Of course, I use that term injustice in the biblical sense, not as it is peddled by the modern day social justice warriors. They invent any number of ways that what they call justice might be offended. Much of it flows out of godless, twisted, confused, pagan worldviews. Their idea of justice is one that upends the natural order of the world and offers reward for inventing new ways of being offended. New ways of being supposedly oppressed by anybody who you deem more privileged than yourself. Well, we can surely get into that issue some other time. But God's sense of justice is tied to his nature It's tied to who he is. It is the basis of God's law in scripture. Any affront to the person of God, to his nature, is an affront to justice. And God cannot ultimately fail to exact perfect judgment on its account. Complete judgment on its account nor should we desire that he would do so. Well, you might ask, but what place then does mercy have with God? And yes, God does show mercy, but it's not mercy at the expense of justice. God shows mercy only because of the sacrifice that Christ came to this earth and paid. It's only because Jesus bore the full weight of the punishment of God that God is able to show mercy to his elect. Of course, that doesn't mean that God's chosen people are the only ones who receive some measure of mercy and patience from God. It's just that those for whom Christ died, they directly receive the benefit of Christ's sacrifice. They are the direct receivers of the mercy, the patience, the endurance of God while the rest of the world, all those who are reprobate and who will never come to faith, they receive a sort of second-hand kind of mercy from God. They too benefit from the kindness and the patience of God towards those on whom he has set his love as he endures the sin and the unrighteousness in this world until that day when the last one of his children have been secured by faith. In Christ. So with God, no scale is ever ultimately left unbalanced. Each injustice that has ever existed or will ever exist 
will be made right. As God's servant on this earth, given the authority of the sword, much should this be true also of the state. Because the state is given the sword in order to punish evil and to reward good. The state is commanded to use that sword justly and fairly according to God's standard and to do so without showing partiality. The state must not fail in this charge or it will become the scourge to its people rather than the blessing it was designed to be. History has shown this to be true time and time again and we are witness firsthand to a state that is increasingly ceasing to be a blessing and a protection to its people and is becoming a scourge. It's a, a institution that rewards what is evil and punishes what is good. But that is not what their charge is from God and that's not their purpose. That kind of exactness isn't necessarily required or desired when it comes to an individual interacting with another individual in their community. So God must be exact. He can can leave nothing unpunished that is deserving of punishment. The state also must show no partiality and be just and fair, but individuals have the opportunity to show mercy and grace one to another without the expectation of judgment coming from their hand especially when that is, we are talking about the community of the church. And that is, of course, the context in which our passage this morning is resting. And so, finding, reminding ourselves of this context, we arrive at our passage this morning to what seems to be the favorite Bible verse of rebellious sinners. Yes, even rebellious sinners have a favorite Bible verse. If a non-Christian knows only one passage in Scripture, they know only one verse, it is likely to be this verse. Of course, when it's quoted, they're only going to quote it in part, and they're going to rip it completely out of context. But here it is, Matthew 7, 1, Judge not that you not be judged. How many times have you heard somebody who cares nothing for the Bible and who you know has nothing but animosity towards our God, how many times have you heard them say something like this? The Bible says, you can't judge me. So woven into this, our culture is this mindset that it often seems to be the, the one universally agreed upon truth that no one has the right to judge you but you. Of course, the person making that claim also demands the ability to pronounce judgment on anybody who doesn't agree with their first judgment. But beloved, we were never promised that everyone would be consistent or logical in their reasoning. Well, so prevalent is this attitude, even within the church, that most Christians have become convinced that they are not in a position or that it would be unloving for them to try to distinguish what is obviously right or what is obviously wrong in another person's life. To even begin to believe that just, even if they think something is wrong and they think that it goes against scripture, 
that it would be wrong for them to try and interject that into someone else's life. You'll even find some in the church that'll say things like, well, I'm just speaking my truth. As if truth itself was subjective to somebody's personal experience. People commonly spout the words, only God can judge me. As if he hasn't already judged all of mankind and condemned all of mankind for all of eternity apart from repentance and obedience in Christ. That phrase, only God can judge me, is a cop-out. It's nonsense. It's designed to be the trump card. Though you can, you can win any argument with somebody who's speaking into your life. It's designed to be able to shut down the conversation. Well, the irony might be lost on these people who use that phrase in that way, but it must not be lost on us. God has already given us a standard, and God has promised that he will judge. That is a warning and a promise. Not something that should give comfort to those who are in sin. So if someone says, only God can judge me, you say, that should terrify you because he will. And he won't miss anything. I believe it's Charles Spurgeon that said, do not be too upset with a man if he points out something that is wrong with you. I'm paraphrasing. Because the reality is you are far worse than he thinks you to be. That is true for the best of us much more for the worst of us. God does not miss anything. Well, as is expected at any time, God-hating unbelievers attempt to use God's word to be able to justify their sin. This verse is often taken out of context. It's often made to say things that Jesus never intended it to say. So it'll be our goal to try and look at this verse in its surrounding context and in its context within the rest of Scripture to see exactly what Jesus actually meant when he said, do not judge. We will see along the way that the Bible does in fact at times require us to make judgments about even other people and their lives. Just as it forbids at other times, judging men by their actions or their motives. What may be interesting is that in the church, we often get these situations reversed, where we refuse to judge those things that God has clearly spoken on, and we endlessly scrutinize and condemn those things that Scripture has told us not to judge. So I ask you again to look with me at the first couple of verses of Matthew 7. Judge not that you will not be judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So I keep speaking of context. Let's remember the context here. Christ, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, had been calling his disciples to a radical form of obedience. They were calling them to something that was radical. This was not just an, a slight shift in perspective. This was a complete paradigm shift. 
They were to walk in humility. They were to labor to please God alone, not before the eyes of men, not to receive the praise of men, not to be thought well of among men, but so that God would see and that God would reward. They were to love, have love and mercy flowing out from them, so much so that their love and mercy needed to extend even towards their enemies, even towards those who were persecuting them even towards those who hated them. Jesus warned them against holding on to the things of this earth. They were not to lay treasures up here, but they were to lay, labor to lay up treasures in heaven. They must have a single-minded focus, a clear eye and devotion towards godliness. They were to have such faith in God that they no longer had anxiety over their daily needs. They were simply to pursue God's kingdom and God's righteousness and trust that God knew everything that they needed, that God was able to meet their needs, and that God cared for them and would meet their needs. The hypocrites, on the other hand, they acted to elevate themselves among the people They wanted to be the standard by which everyone else was judged. And the Pharisees had done a pretty good job at becoming that standard among the people. They were focused on earthly gain, on the praise and adoration of men. Their faith was in the goods of this world, and as such, they lived in fear, in constant anxiety over those things that they needed. Christ over and again has been telling his disciples that they must not believe and they must not live as the hypocrites believed and lived. At the heart of Christ's command in our passage is a rebuke of being overly critical of others while at the same time offering yourself every benefit of the doubt and grace that you can imagine. The command is concerned with those who look for things in others to criticize and yet have no desire to look within. So the issue isn't ultimately that they were just too serious about sin. The Bible never tells us to not be serious about sin. So if that isn't the issue, what is? Well, their issue was that they were too selective in where they chose to look for the sin. And they were selective in how they decided to go about dealing with it. Jesus told them that the standard of judgment that you apply to other people will also be applied to you. That is the warning. You don't get to hold others to one standard over here that is demanding, exacting, with no grace or mercy, and then you yourself be judged by something lighter or easier. Not ultimately, at least, that will not stand. This isn't so different from the warning that Jesus gave us earlier in the, just after the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. He said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So just think, two times and not that large of a section of teaching, Jesus warned his disciples that the way they treated one another 
is related. It corresponds to the way that they will be treated by God. We really do need to take this seriously. Take a good hard look within because how we feel about others and how we act toward others will affect how we treat them. And we have been warned now twice that that will have an effect on how God treats us. Well, Jesus devoted a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere throughout his teaching to revealing that the righteousness and the piety of the scribes and Pharisees was false, that their religion was false. It was not, in fact, pleasing to God. Remember that they were the benchmark against which people judged themselves, the benchmark of piety and faithfulness. Jesus warned the people that they must not be like the hypocritical Pharisees, And that word carries just as strong of a connotation back then as it does now. They must not be like these hypocrites, judging people by a man-made standard, a standard that they themselves could not live up to, and doing it with no grace, with no love and no compassion. There was nothing righteous about these men, these hypocrites. There was nothing that pleased God. Their only concern was with setting themselves above everybody around them and in the process tearing everyone else down. The Pharisees had a harsh judgment before them, in large part because of how they treated everybody else, how they judged other people. They would be judged by that same standard and they would not escape the wrath that was to come. As Jesus had often said before, those who would follow him must not be like them. A disciple of Christ must not have that kind of attitude. They cannot live to build themselves up and to tear others down. And they cannot be selective about which sins they choose to care about. That isn't true righteousness. God is not pleased by that, and his wrath will surely be poured out on account of it. That is one accusation that the world likes to throw at the church that often has a sticking point, that often has something there where it actually needs to be corrected. Many professing Christians like to pick and choose those things which we think are serious and which are not. Yet we must hold ourselves and everyone else to God's standard in order to what God says is serious. Well, now that we have a better idea of what Jesus is in fact addressing in this statement, the kind of judging that he is dealing with, the question still remains, is it ever appropriate for a believer in Christ to judge anyone? Is this a complete ban on making judgments. Well, we think about the Sermon on the Mount so far. This whole sermon has been painting a picture of what God's true disciples are supposed to look like. Jesus clearly intended that his disciples would use their God-given ability to reason, to be able to see what was in front of them, 
to evaluate and to make judgments. You'd be irresponsible to use this verse to prohibit making any kind of judgment about what is right and what is wrong. And that would be inconsistent with the rest of the teachings of Scripture. Jesus, in Luke 12, 56 and 57, he criticized people that was listening to him for failing to judge what was right and wrong. So they were actually criticized for failing to judge. He rebuked them because they had enough sense to be able to see what was going on with the weather, yet they had failed to understand what was clearly in front of them about what was right and what was wrong, the mood of the age. In John 7, 24, Jesus gave the command, do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgments. The problem was not that people would judge what is right and what is wrong. The problem was whether or not that judgment was made according to man's standard or according to God's standard. And as we'll see next week, according to the hypocrisy of our own actions, in seeing sin only in those that are around us and ignoring where it is obvious in ourselves. The concern is over the standard of judgment and the critical attitude from which judgments are so often made. Well, if we judge according to our own standard, then we place ourselves in the position of God. God alone gets to determine what is right or wrong. This is one of those sins that the Pharisees committed in their judgments. They set themselves up to be in a position where they could declare what was good and what was bad, that their standard was what people should follow, but how they should approach God, how they should live, how they should give of themselves. Man is never in the final judgment of other people. Because we do not set the standard that other men are to live up to. This does not mean, however, that we are not both able and commanded to make judgments about what is right and what is wrong, both in our lives and in the lives of others. Just simply means we must do so according to God's standard. And God has given us a standard. He has given us a standard that, according to Jesus, is far more broad-reaching than even the Pharisees realized. If you remember in Matthew 5, 21 through 48, as time after time, Jesus pointed out how the teaching of the Pharisees, though in their minds something that was very strict, in fact fell short of what God was truly desiring of his people. It is his standard we measure everything against. Because remember that this passage is not just telling us do not judge, but it is warning that you will be judged according to the same judgment and measure that you hold others to. That is simply the promise of a fair, balanced, and a ju- a fair and balanced and equal measurements. That is something that if you read through the Old Testament through Proverbs, you'll realize is of great value to God. It is the heart of justice, the heart of how we are to treat one another without partiality. A lesson that the leaders in Israel should have learned well. So I ask you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19, starting at verse 33. 
Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus, chapter 19. I'll read 33 through 37. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephath, a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you shall observe all my statutes and my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Turn forward just a couple more books to Deuteronomy chapter 25, starting in verse 14. Shall I'll start back at verse 13, Deuteronomy 25, turning in verse 13. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall give, that all your days may go be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Of course, that is not an isolated teaching. Just look at, think of Proverbs 20.10, that unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So clearly in this context, the command against judging simply cannot be a complete prohibition on making determinations about what is right or what is wrong. The whole of the Sermon on the Mount is a call to make judgments and to act accordingly. That has included primarily judgments about what is in your own heart, judgments about your own motives, but it has also included judgments about those who are around you. So if we accept that there are both judgments that we should make and those that we must not make, we need to keep a few questions in mind and be continually looking for answers. By what standard do we judge? That's actually a good question to remind yourself. By what standard? If you're having a a debate either in your own mind or with someone else, By what standard? What is the foundational point that we must agree on? According to what measure do we hand out consequences of our judgments? What are we looking at when we evaluate ourselves and others? What are we demanding? Are we able to look to see progress, to be able to reward progress where something has been making positive movements? Or do we demand each and every time absolute perfection? What is our end goal in making judgments when we deal one with another? Vengeance? Retribution? Justice? Or is it restoration? Unity? And peace. Well, beloved, when we think about how we are to judge what is right and wrong, 
We must begin by looking inward before we look outward. The cry of our heart must always be that of the psalmist in Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That is where we must begin when we're trying to evaluate something, especially when we're trying to look into someone else's life to evaluate their actions or their words or to contemplate their motives. We must begin, as Paul wrote, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Well, this principle is going to be humorously, humorously illustrated for us in our passage next week. Next week, just as a preview, we're going to be looking at the picture that Jesus gave of what it means to be looking at other people's faults without looking at your own. As we picture a man walking around with a large tree sticking out of his eye, and yet who is able to go to someone else and find a speck in their eye and call out that speck without acknowledging the tree in his own. And as further preview of next week, the man with a log in his eye is not condemned because he saw the speck or cared about the speck. He was just challenged that he must first get rid of the log in his own eye. Self-evaluation before engaging with the heart, the motive, and the actions of others is critical if we would seek to honor God, if we would seek to actually help build up one another rather than to try and tear one another down. Our attitude affects how we feel about others. Our attitude affects how we treat others. If our focus is on ourself, if our focus is on what we want, on what will make us look good, then we will not judge with a just balance or respond in appropriate measure. Of course, we all know this to be true. We have all experienced this. When we are angry or tired or depressed or feeling slighted, we see things different. Especially if we're not in a place where we can actually admit to ourselves what we are feeling and try to actively work against that when we interact with those around us. We have all had times where we had to repent of the way that we responded to somebody because we know that our response came out of what we were feeling internally and it had very little or nothing to do with what they did or what they said. Those times where we must join with the psalmist in asking God to search our hearts to reveal what is within us. Praying that God would give us victory over those things that are in us that are sinful. And then he would give us grace and strength and wisdom to respond faithfully even when we feel those things and cannot be rid of them. We must do this and we must do this often to be self-aware of what is affecting us. Be aware of what is going on in your heart and use that knowledge as a filter when you interact one with another. So be angry or sad 
or confused or tired, and yet do not sin. Do not let it make you become unbalanced. Do not let it make you become hypercritical in your judging and your your discerning one with another. Beloved, you do not have to obey the first impulse that you feel in every experience. You do not have to obey the first impulse you feel in response to something that you are confronted with. That isn't more genuine or real. It isn't some sort of virtue to just be raw and real about the first thing that comes into your mind. You are not an animal. Use the reason that God has given you to be able to discern, to be able to filter what you are experiencing and to be able to respond in a way that has wisdom and reflects sound judgment. The world has lost any sense of that and it celebrates and encourages and multiplies rash responses fueled by unstable emotions and foolishness. So we must begin by judging what is in our hearts. Yet as believers in Christ and members of his body, the church, we also have a clear mandate to be discerning about what's going on in the lives of others around us. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 9. And we'll see how Paul responded when he learned of open sin that had not been dealt with when the Corinthian church. So it's Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 9. Paul said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Another few verses that you probably don't see cross-stitched on many pillows in little old ladies' homes. The church is the living testimony of the gospel of Christ on this earth. God is jealous that this witness of his gospel be a faithful witness. He is jealous that those who bear the name of Christ would be held to his standard. To the standard that Jesus so clearly has been describing throughout the Sermon on the Mounts. Those who refuse to live by those standards, 
Those who reject and deny them, those who refuse to humble themselves and be brought under discipline so that they can be brought back within proper order within the church, they must not be allowed to remain in the church. And they must not be allowed to uncontestedly claim the name of Christ. To allow such a thing is to dim the light of the gospel witness of God's church. We have not been left in the dark about the standard that we are to judge believers by. Nor have we been left in the dark about how to exercise judgment according to those standards. Jesus told his disciples how they should act when sin has been brought into the light, into the light in the lives of one of their brothers. In Matthew 18, we, we reference that passage often. Of course, that kind of passage, then talking about church discipline, that requires that somebody makes a judgment about somebody else's actions, about somebody else's life. You must make a judgment about your brother if you are to go to them and point out an offense. If you are to point out to them some way that they are, are failing to live in obedience to Christ and try to call them back to repentance. Even if it is just a speck in their eye, that speck matters. And if you are seeing clearly, because you have asked God to search out your heart, you have been aware of what is sinful in your life, you have sought to rid yourself of sin and to think balanced and proportionately, you may be just able to keep someone from shipwrecking their faith by judging their lives and being open with them about it. But when you do bring light, the to light, the sin of a brother, the sin that you see in someone else, be very mindful of your motive and the heaviness of hand with which you bring correction. You can err by bringing with the wrong standard, and you can err by being out of proportion and balance with earthly consequence. When judgment is mandated, it must come with the intention of making restoration. We never bring judgment on those who profess the name of Christ with the hope of casting them out with the hope that they would be anathematized and that the hope that God would judge them in hell. That is never our hope for those who profess Christ. It is always to try and bring restoration. As Jude wrote in Jude 22 and 23, and have mercy on those who doubt, saving others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. We judge the sin in the lives of those who profess Christ out of a love for God and out of a love for those who profess Christ. We love the name of God and we hate to see his name mocked or abused. We hate to see people use his name who despise him and show it by their actions and the rebellion. And we also love the person. And we know beyond doubt that the one who remains in continual rebellion and sin will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
We don't judge by our own standard, nor should we take any pleasure in causing anyone else pain. Yet Scripture is very clear that by a person's actions, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So in the church, we judge out of love, yes, but we are commanded to judge. Well, I mentioned earlier that in the church, we often get confused about those things that we are supposed to judge and those things that we are not supposed to judge, that we often get these things backwards. Well, in Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, and 2 Timothy 3, Paul gives lists of the kinds of sin that marks the lives of unbelievers. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, theft, lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of of pleasure. Lover, we are all guilty of at least some form of at least some of these sins. Yet Scripture is clear that a Christian cannot make a practice of these things, that a Christian cannot have their lives be marked by these things. It is because of such strong warnings against those who practice these things, because of those warnings, because our love for one another, that we are called to be diligent, called to diligently search ourselves and to search out the lives of one another so that we can keep each other from this kind of sin, that we can rescue one another as if pulling them back from the flames. We can diligently work to restore, to protect to guard, to love. It is out of love and care for one another and a fear out of what it means when someone continues in rebellion that we in great humility and compassion call sin, sin. Because believers are to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. And scripture has made both of these categories abundantly clear. Professing Christians often do a very poor job of dealing with obvious sin. We see things of that kind of list in other people and rather than call it out or go to them in private first and, and out of genuine concern and love for them, speak into that and question them about it. We don't do those things with things that are obvious often because we're afraid of what is going to be thrown back at us. Because we are so careless in our own lives that we wouldn't be able to stand up to the same kind of scrutiny that we are offering to someone else. Or because we have been fooled into thinking it is more loving and kind just to allow them to remain as they are and to let them work it out. Yet Christians and professing professing Christians are often more than happy to make judgments about those things that we are told not to judge one another on. We have been commanded not to judge people by their appearance or their wealth. 
We are commanded not to judge anyone according to what they drink or what they eat or which religious festivals they celebrate or how they observe the Sabbath. Regarding these things, particularly those that Scripture does not condemn and under which some people's consciences are held, Paul said, Who are you to pass judgment on the servants of another? It is before his own master that he either stands or falls. It is a sad state if we spend more time scrutinizing the motives of someone else than we do taking seriously the sin that we plainly see in our lives or theirs. And we haven't even discussed yet how Christians are to make judgments concerning those who are unbelievers to those who are hostile to the gospel. Of course, that is the focus of verse 6, which we didn't read this morning. And Lord willing, will be our focus in two weeks. Where Christ talks about casting our pearls before pigs and before dogs. Beloved, the real heart of the issue is the standard by which we make judgments. And it is the demeanor in which we seek to give out consequence. The way in which you judge others is the way in which you will be judged. Do you judge others fairly? What do you hold them to? What do you hold yourself to? When you expose someone else's failure, do you prefer that they receive the maximum punishment or humiliation for every, every offense that you can find? Or do you prioritize instead mercy and grace whenever possible? Judge others in the way that you would hope that they would judge you. Essentially, this is a preview of the golden rule that we will see later in chapter 7. Think about the way that you evaluate others around you and check, is that the way that you want them to evaluate you? Do not hold them to a high standard with exacting precision and demand and then expect that they will give you the benefit of the doubt when you are called on something. If you do, then you are a hypocrite. As you go forth this week, pray that God would reveal your heart to you. Repent of your double standard. Repent where you have been a hypocrite and remained there no more. Repent of searching out failures in others and then lashing out when they're so brazen as to suggest that you might have failures of your own. Think about how you make judgments toward others. And really think about if that's how you want to be judged. I want to leave you with a few words from the Apostle Paul from Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord.
Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Father, it is my prayer that you would make us faithful. Father, don't allow us to become callous to sin, to be more concerned with our comfort and ease and trying to avoid confronting what we've been commanded to confront. But let us do that when we must with the hope and prayer for restoration, for unity, for peace among your people. Father, strip strip us of any overcritical spirit towards one another. Forbid that we would take more joy in finding faults with others than in by your grace and by your spirit seeing sin in our own life removed from us and overcome. Father, for ourselves and for one another, may we prefer sanctification. May we prefer righteousness. May we prefer growth and mercy and love and encouragement rather than being able to criticize and to gain standing relative to the one whom we have lowered. Make us faithful in Christ. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.